I remember that. <laughs> Sorry. I added that there. I was, I was feeling the need of connection. We all need to connect <laughs> in these times, these difficult times. That should go to the outtake. <laughs> I think the outtake should always end with that should be the outtake. That's the best part. <laughs> Skylar Weldon. And I'm Shanana Cantarela This is Masa, a podcast about Brazilian music and culture. Skylar and I are music professors and musicians. In each episode, we dive into a specific genre, song, artist, or issue in Brazilian music to try to understand how it works and what it means. How are you today, Juliana? Doing well. I'm excited to continue our discussion of the music of the Afro-Brazilian religion, Candomblé. Me too. Uh, for those that missed it, in the last episode, we discussed Candomblé's origins and general belief structure. We also briefly touched on its continued importance in Brazilian popular music and how it plays a part in some Black Brazilian struggle for justice and equality. And if you did miss it, at least you should know this. Candomblé is the name for a number of Afro-Brazilian religions that survived with enslaved people who were brought to Brazil from West and Central Africa. In Brazil, various African religions blended and over centuries, these were codified into sets of beliefs and practices. These episodes focus on the strand of Candomblé derived mainly from Yoruba belief systems. Since we went with an overview last time, I thought today we could start with some percussion instruments and the rhythms that they play. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. Just like last time, let's start by listening to some recently recorded music that makes use of candomblé rhythms. Let's do it. This is the song Pade Onan, performed by Kiko Ginucci and Bando Afro Macahonico. <laughs> Abra o caminho dos passos, abra o caminho do olhar, abra caminho tranquilo para eu passar. Laroye legua, tomba o mal de joelhos, só levantando o gó, dobra a força dos braços que eu vou só. Aha, I think I know what you're doing here. What do you mean? Well, it's not the topic of this episode, but Candomblé ceremonies tend to worship the Orishas or deities in a certain order. This is a song for the Odisha called Eshu, who is always worshipped first. 
You got me. I felt kind of guilty about opening our discussion of Candomblé last time with Shango, who's a different Odisha. And I'm trying to make up for it by starting this one off right. Works for me. We'll talk about the lyrics and such a bit later in the episode, but for now, try to hold on to that opening sound. Ah, yes, those drums and that bell. Yes. Uh, speaking of the bell, I want to share one more song, and this is even newer. It starts with pretty similar drums, and if you listen carefully, you can hear that same bell sound about 30 seconds in, though it's playing a different rhythm. This song is called Preta Ya Ya by Shenia Frunza. I heard it. It sounds like this, right? That's the one. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's back up a bit and talk about the importance of these instruments and rhythms in Candomblé worship. Then we can come back to these examples and dissect them a little closer. Okay? Massa. So last time we noted that in most tejeros, that's the place where candomblé worship happens. The musical ensemble has three drummers and a bell, though there can be variations. Right. So we thought today we could talk through the names of these instruments and discuss a bit more the roles that they play. Because these drums differ in role, shape, and name, depending on the specific lineage that informs them, let's focus today on the most widely disseminated form of candomblé, called candomblé Ketu. Ketu is one of the nations or nações of candomblé. Its origins are primarily Yoruba, and it's the kind of candomblé practice most common in the northeastern state of Bahia. It's fair to say that when we hear candomblé in popular music, it's most frequently nação Ketu. Should we start with the drums? In Candomblé Quieto, you'll usually hear three cylindrical drums called atabakis. 
This is the generic name for the kind of drum. Also encountered these same drums in the music of capoeira. And in Bahian Samba Jihada. Atabakis have a single drum head, that is, an animal skin that is stretched across one of the openings. If you picture a conga drum, only a little narrower and of three distinct heights, you'll have a sense of it. And in performance, these drums are positioned upright in matching wooden stands that secure the drums. They can either be played with the hands, with two sticks, or with one stick and one open hand, depending on the tejero and the toki. The toki is the rhythm associated with a particular odisha. The whole rhythm, including all the instruments. Uh, the ethnomusicologist Juan Diego Diaz calls it the groove associated with a particular Odisha. Last time we talked about the toki called Aluja, which is associated with Shango. In Candomblé Quetu, each of these drums has a name and a particular role in the ensemble. The largest drum is called Hum. Spelled R-U-M, like the alcohol you used to make mojitos but pronounced hum, like, well, I can't think of anything. In Kondoblaketo, the hum is the master drum, the one that leads the ensemble. medium-sized drum is called humpi. R-U-M-P-I. And the smallest is called le. L-E. The pitches of the drums correspond with their size. The hum is the lowest pitched and the le is the highest one. The humpi and the le support the hum, adjusting their rhythms in response to what happens on the hum. As we mentioned last time, the drummers are called alabes, though in some cases just the leader, the home player, has that name. Here's what these drums sound like all together. These drums are sacred instruments. It is through the drums that alabes develop ashe, 
And in case you forgot, Asha is the life force or energy that flows through all things and connects the visible or human world and the invisible world of the Orishas and ancestors. The rhythms that the drums play are a kind of speech surrogacy. They are how worshippers communicate with the Orishas to develop Asha. Kondomblé practitioners then respect the power of the drums and treat them accordingly. For special ceremonies, the drums are dressed in sacred cloths, and when they aren't being played, they're covered. And if that's not proof enough of these instruments' importance and power, they also go through a baptism when they are first constructed. This shows just how much effort, time, and care is put into the drums. According to Gerard Behag, who did one of the earliest English language studies of the music of Candomblé, the baptism is an important process in establishing and nourishing the drums' voices so that they remain irresistible to the Orishas. All three drums in a set are constructed together and baptized together. During the baptism, the drums are left in a slanting position. Which is different than their upright playing position. And the candomblécistas leave offerings in front of the drums, including animal blood, a sacred liquid made from herbs and plants, salt, honey, and palm oil known as dende. These substances are all known to generate ashe, hence their importance to the drums. The worshippers also sacrifice one feathered animal for each of the drums. The ceremony includes a song for Ogun, who is the Orisha associated with metal tools. He needs to be invoked in order to use the sacrificial knife. The drums are then sprinkled with the offerings, ending with the dende and the head of the animal. Finally, the worshippers vocalize for the Orisha for whom the drums were baptized, which will differ depending on the specific teheru. That Orisha then takes possession of the drums, establishing a direct connection between the instrument and the Orisha. So you see, these drums are more than just animal skins stretched across a wooden shell. Yes, they're embedded with spiritual power. It really shows you how important the music is in Candomblé if the drums are treated with such respect. occurs to me that this ensemble, three drums, each playing a different rhythm with a leader, is something that's relatively standard in traditional music practice in West Africa. Yes, and the other instruments in the ensemble also seem to have a West African origin. As we mentioned last time, there is a bell, either a gun or an agogo. The gun is typically wrought iron and the agogo industrially produced. So they have different sounds, but depending on the tejero, you might find one or the other. The bell plays a timeline around which the other instrumentalists organize themselves. Wait, what do you mean by that, plays a timeline? Good question. The term timeline was coined by the Ghanaian music scholar Kwabena Nketia to describe this way of organizing metrical time with a bell pattern. It's a different way of conceptualizing rhythm than what we tend to find in European-derived musics. So in European-derived music, you would count, right? Like one, two, three, four. Exactly. There is a pulse. That's what you were counting. Uh, and then you could subdivide from there. Each pulse might be divided in twos or threes. So you might be one and two and three and four and, or one and uh, two and uh, three and uh, four and... Uh, it relies on the fact that each pulse is the same duration, right? Yes. The bell pattern in West African music is not conceptualized like that. The durations of each note are not always equal. 
So here's a bell pattern associated with a talkie called Ijesha. So if you were to count the durations beginning on one, each time the player strikes the bell, it would be one, one, two, one, two, one, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, one, two, one, two, one, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Sure, it sounds a little silly when you count it out like that, but it does give you a sense of how you could divide up this rhythm asymmetrically. Think about these, um, each hit as having its own duration. What if you were just to count the one, two, three, four pulse from before? Well, that would be one, two, three, four, 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 one, two, three. It sounds like it's syncopated. Yes. Uh, would you like to explain that, though? Syncopation is when a rhythm emphasizes unexpected places in the rhythm cycle, often what are called weak beats. When we take a Eurocentric approach to music, which we're trying not to do, we have a pulse, which represents strong beats, and the subdivisions in between are weaker. When a rhythm emphasizes in between the strong beats, it feels syncopated. One and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and... So in West African music, the bell might not emphasize that pulse, the one, two, three, four. Instead, it might divide the time cycle into some other, often asymmetrical, pattern like the one you just played before. Precisely. And this matters because the very way of conceptualizing musical time is different. So the fact that Candomblé has a bell that plays a timeline is further evidence of its African heritage. Yes, and even more than that, it's so embedded in the music that, in a way, it teaches practitioners, teaches players, to conceptualize music differently just as they participate in the music. And this offers a less Eurocentric approach to music making. One two one two one one two one two one two one two one two one one two one two one one two one two one two one two one two. I think we're ready to return to the rhythms that we heard at the top of this episode. Don't you think? Yes. I remember that we asked everyone to listen for the bell, right? Indeed. Both of those songs feature bell patterns that are common in Candomblé Keto. The first is the bell pattern associated with the talkie called Ijesha. We heard that in the Kiko Dinucci song, Padeo Na. That's the one. Let's hold off on talking about the lyrics of that song and zero in on that rhythm, shall we? Yeah, sounds good. So Juan Diego Diaz has pointed out that in parts of Bahia, the Ijesha Toki is very frequently associated with the Orisha Oshun. We'll talk more about Oshun in the next episode, but for now, it might be useful to know that Oshun is a female Orisha. She's associated with fresh water. She's responsible for fertilizing the earth and associated with maternity and young children. Let's listen to a bit of an Ijesha for Oshun, here performed by the percussionist Georges Alabe. Listen for how the Agogo is so consistent in playing the timeline while the other instruments play off of it. If you're listening with headphones, you can hear the Le in the right channel and the Humpi in the left channel. 
They come in one at a time and then stick to consistent patterns. In the center is the hung, which plays variations. It might seem like improvisation um, because it, it varies widely in terms of what it's playing, but the patterns are taught and learned in order to communicate with the Odishas. This example is sort of mid-tempo, not too intense. It reflects Oshun's sweetness and beauty. It's not hard to hear how the quality of the Odisha is captured in the talkie. No, it's actually pretty evident. We should say that not every Tejero is going to play this exact talkie this exact way. Because Candomblé developed in pockets, some traditions diverge widely from others, and the Ijecha bell pattern may sometimes accompany a talkie for a different Odisha altogether. Speaking of which, maybe we should look again at Padeona. Right, because Padeona is not about Oshun, but rather the Odisha called Eshu, who you mentioned is always worshipped first. Yes, the worship sequence starts with Eshu because he's the Odisha associated with opening doors. The Senhor da Comunicação. The Lord of Communication. Yeah, and so practitioners start with a shoe so he can open the doors between the visible and the invisible worlds. Some say that if you don't praise him first, he'll disrupt the ceremony. The word pade refers to the offering made to a shoe at the start of the worship practice. The first word of the song, laroye, is the saudação or words of praise associated with a shoe. Each stanza starts with this saudação, followed by some of Eshu's names. Yes, there is Bara, Elegua. Then Legba. In the rest of the first stanza, the lyrics reference the primary function of Eshu. Uh, Abra o caminho dos passos. Abra o caminho do olhar. Abra caminho tranquilo para eu passar. Open the walking path. Open the singing path. Make it easy for me to pass. It's the request for Eshu not to disturb the ensuing ceremony. This is not a direct recreation of a talkie or song for Eshu. It's an interpretation an amalgam of candomblé reference and other things. For example, the title even has reference to the biblical figure Onan. Known in English as Onan. The use of this talkie in this context brings up an interesting tension. These rhythms from candomblé are pervasive in Brazilian popular music, which some people criticize. Indeed, in his book Let's Make Some Noise, the music scholar Clarence Bernard Henry has written that some candomblécistas 
especially those from older generations, are worried about the, quote, secularization and popularity of rhythms such as Ijecha that in many ways are becoming sonic symbols of Afro-Brazilian racial identity, end quote. Specifically, the concern revolves around the abuse of sacred musical ashe for financial gain in a way that might not please the Odishas. Some younger musicians counter this view by pointing out that financial gain is a pragmatic necessity. It's so complicated because it's not really our place to judge. Um, we're outsiders to Candomblé, and this is an argument happening within the Candomblé community. Some people find that the promotion of Candomblé values through popular music is a good thing. It can even contribute to reparations never given to Black Brazilians by earning them money. And it's completely understandable that some people would want to protect these sacred sounds because by bringing them into a popular, secular context, they can be misunderstood, misrepresented, and above all, may irritate the Odishas. Yeah, which is not something we're really in a position to decide. Yeah. Should we talk about the other bell pattern that was featured at the top of the episode? Let's. In case you've forgotten what it sounds like, you can hear it here in Chenea France's Preta Yaya. Vocação para misturar, força para transcender, almas para elevar. Preta Yaya, devo tudo a você. O canto malembe. How about we sing out the bell pattern so it's clearly audible? Some of you out there might recognize this bell pattern. In West Africa, it's so common that scholars have taken to calling it the standard pattern. I played it when I studied the music of the Ewe people of southeastern Ghana. But it's also present in Cuba, where people call it bembe. And of course, scholars have also noted the prevalence of this rhythm as a bell pattern in Yoruba music. In Candomblé de Nação Queto, the rhythm is called vasi. Practitioners note that it's characteristic of Nação Queto, and therefore serves as the basis for a number of different talkies. It has a slow and fast version, similar to what you would encounter in Ghana, for example. The slow version is sometimes used as the basis for talkies for a shoe. It makes sense that Eshu would get the slower form because he tends to be praised first, so his music comes before a lot of intensity is built up musically. It's also used in faster forms to praise Shango. And Ogun. This is interesting because both Shango and Ogun are traditionally masculine Odishas who are warriors. Shango is about justice, of course, but he's also in charge of thunder, for example. And Ogun, as we know, is in charge of forged metal, which would presumably include weapons. Why is it interesting? 
Well, among the Awe, this rhythm accompanies music called agbeka, which traditionally was music that prepared warriors for battle. Wow, so this rhythm might have some element of militance to it. I'm making a pretty loose connection here based on my limited knowledge, but it's interesting to find these connections. Hopefully in a later episode, we can bring a true expert in to parse the specificities. Yeah, let's do that. What can we say about the Vasi's rhythmic properties? The classic version, and of course there will be varieties, has seven hits spread out over 12 pulses. Explaining it gets kind of tricky. Why so? Well, even more than our discussion of the bell pattern in Ije's Shah, the Vasi really challenges a Eurocentric conception of strong and weak pulses. Talk us through that. So there are 12 pulses, right? 12 is divisible by 3, 4, and 6. So you could imagine a version of Vasi where the main pulse happens three times, four times, or six times. All right, show me. So here's what it sounds like with three pulses per cycle. Here's what it sounds like with four. And this is six. Do you hear how different they are? Yeah, they're completely different. Which one is correct? All of them. None of them. What? Well, they're all there at the same time, but none of them are necessarily dominant. The rhythms that the players put on top might imply or emphasize different aspects at different moments. So if we were to impose an Eurocentric notion of a pulse... It would hierarchize those different feels and leave our conception of the rhythm basically incomplete. I think I can show some examples of this in our next episode uh, when we talk about the candomblé from my hometown of Recife. Great. Let's hear this rhythm again in Preta Yaya. I want to see something. Vocação para misturar This seems to be implying a four-pulse feel. It definitely is. Because this song is mixing the vasi on the bell and the rhythm of the atabakis with a pop backbeat. Right. So this is transformed into a popular song, so it takes on characteristics of pop music, like the four count. On the one hand, it shows the flexibility of these rhythms to be adapted to popular music. On the other hand, it shows the limits of doing that because popular music introduces different structures. The lyrics of this song also refer last to Candomblé. What's going on there? It's not clear until the last line, but the song seems to be sung about and to black musical practice, which she calls both musica preta, literally black music, and preta yaya, with yaya being a term of respect for elder women in Yoruba. It seems to have the same root as yalorisha and yakekere, the two terms we discussed in the last episode uh, that refer to the priestess in the candomblé tejero. Okay, so if black music, Afro-Brazilian music, is being praised in feminine form because música is a feminine word in Portuguese, uh, what else does Xenia França have to say about it? 
First she sings, ela vai te seduzir, lhe tirar para dançar. She's going to seduce you and make you dance. Pretty standard music stuff. Right, but a couple of lines later, she sings, tem vocação para misturar, força para transcender. She has the calling to mix, the force to transcend. Whoa, I think she's talking about exactly what we said before, about mixing candomblé. Black music has the power to transcend and mix. That seems to be the case. Ela vai te seduzir, lhe tirar para dançar. Elevar a dimensões, vai mobilizar, fazer clarão. Vocação para misturar, força para transcender. Almas para elevar, preta iaia, devo tudo Interesting. So this song is making the case for this kind of mixture of candomblé and popular music. There's something else too. Check out the last line. Música preta, sou teu instrumento. Vim para te servir. Black music, I'm your instrument, I've come to serve you. Oh, I see. She's almost speaking to black music, to Afro-Brazilian music, like an initiate would speak to an orixá. Me adule no colo, me pegue pra ti. Música preta, sou teu instrumento, vim pra te servir. Wow, that's so interesting. I don't know if those connections would be even the slightest bit legible if they weren't contextualized with the atabaki and the gun playing the vasi. Yeah. Well, that is certainly a lot to think about. Yes. It's very complicated how these rhythms have penetrated Brazilian popular music. I'm really struck by Xenia Ferenc's comments on the power of Afro-Brazilian music for mixture and transcendence. It also brings up the issue of the sacred rhythms and how they have transcended over time. Right. The people who kept these rhythms going over centuries of enslavement and oppression. It's incredible. Yeah. And of course, people will ask whether the rhythms are exactly the same as those that arrived in Brazil with enslaved people. From a technical standpoint, almost certainly not. Though the Vasi seems like a candidate for preservation over time. Yes, but as far as the corpus of rhythms that make up candomblé ketu practice, scholars like Larry Crook and others have indicated that Brazilian drummers and worshippers have almost certainly changed these rhythms over time. But they are derived from rhythms that had specific meanings and uses, and there is no reason to believe that they haven't been able to hold on their sacred power even in those changes. Makes you wonder if they can hold on to them in a popular music context. It does. It really does. Before we go, I'm finding myself a bit confused by all the orishas that have come up over these two episodes. Maybe we could go through a few of them and their qualities, try to understand how specific Tejero worships them in a sequence. I'd love that. Next time? Next time. Well, thanks so much, Juliana. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Skylar. I learned a lot. See you soon. Esse foi massa. Massa is written, produced, and edited by Skylar Weldon and me, Juliana Cantarelli Vita. For episode transcriptions and links, please visit our website, esifoimassa.com. That's E-S-S-E-F-O-I-M-A-S-S-A dot com. You can email us at esifoimassa at gmail.com. Our intro music is by Sonda Massa, and our outro music is by Sammy Bananas.
Please join us in two weeks for our third episode on Candomblé, when we'll talk through some of the more common orishas and the worship sequence called Jireh. Until then, esse foi massa. Are you going to call me Shula? Entendi. Shula. Não, eu ia falar Juliana. E <laughs> Shula. <laughs> Juliana. <laughs>